0: Well good morning and look to the Lord for his blessing upon our gathering even here in the Adult Bible class. So we'll just unite ourselves together in prayer, maybe while some others join with us for those who are watching online. We trust the Lord will bless us as we gather around his word and his truth. So let's unite together in prayer and let's come before the Lord, beginning of his day and his house, the privilege that we have together to assemble. So let's let's come before our God, our gracious and loving and eternal Father the one who is God from everlasting to everlasting. We bow down our hearts before thee. We come, O God, at the commencement of this thy day in thy house and thy courts. We enter with thanksgiving and praise. God, we are a blessed people. We come to thee, O God, and we thank thee that thou art the living God. And we rejoice that we who were dead in trespasses and sin, we thank thee, Lord, that we have been quickened in Christ. We've been made alive unto our God. We thank Thee, Father, for regeneration by the Spirit. We thank Thee, Lord, for the application of the precious blood. We rejoice in the forgiveness of our sins. We have peace and communion and fellowship with our God. And we come before Thee this day, and we want to praise and adore Thee. And, Lord, to that end, we pray that Thou would fill us with Thy Spirit, that we would worship Thee aright, that Thou, God, would cleanse us in the Redeemer's blood. We thank Thee for... Lord, this place, we thank thee for the ministries that are go, even going on at this moment in time. We thank thee for our Sunday school and each and every little boy and girl, for those brought in, in the buses left by their parents. Oh, God, we pray that Thou would bless their souls, that Thou would open up their hearts to receive instruction. We thank thee, Lord, for the illumination and the enlightenment that the Spirit of God can give to the mind and the hearts to, of those who are in the darkness of their sin. And we pray, O God, that uh, fresh views of Christ will be given unto your own dear children. And Lord, we pray that you'll help help those who would teach and fill them with Thy Spirit. Lord, come here and help, Lord, in the adult Bible class. And we pray that Thou would give us of Thy presence, O Father. And may we be conscious that the Spirit of the Lord is working amongst us. Lord, remember this day in the house of our God. We pray it'll be a a special day. a blessed day to our souls. May it be, Lord, one which edifies us and draws us closer to Thee. And we pray, O God, that in all things that the Lord Jesus Himself would receive all the glory and all the honor, for He alone is worthy. We look away to Thee, Lord. Help us now as we open up and turn to the Scripture. We pray all this in the Savior's precious and lovely name. Amen. So this morning I'm going to ask you to turn to Exodus chapter 40, please. Exodus 40, and we'll read from the end of the chapter, really, verse 30. Exodus chapter 40, verse 30, and we'll read into Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 3. So Exodus chapter 40, and we'll commence our reading there at verse 30. So let's hear... The word of our God, and he set the laver between the tent of the congregation and the altar, and put water there to wash withal. And Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet thereat, when they went into the tent of the congregation, and when they came near unto the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he reared up the court round about the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the hanging of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation, because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward on their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of a congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord... Ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd, and of the flock. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a meal without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. Amen. And we'll end our reading there, verse 3 in Leviticus, chapter 1. We trust the Lord will bless His Word to our hearts. Now this morning I want to begin another series in the adult Bible class. I had uncertainty of which way to go and I couldn't settle really on a subject and what we should think about and look at even after we had studied and completed that series on Bibliology. But I believe the Lord would have us to consider the five Levitical offerings in the book of Leviticus. And well, one of the primary reasons is I myself, I want to get a grasp of what they mean and what they represent since they are referenced so much and are referenced a lot in the Scripture, especially under the dispensation of the Old Testament. And I've entitled this new series, Shadows of the Saviour in the Sacrifices. Now, there is warrant for looking for Christ in every part of Scripture. The Lord Jesus, walking to a mess with the two of His disciples, He showed that privileged couple that he was to be found in In the writings of Moses and all the prophets, and later he specifically mentioned the Psalms too, there were things concerning himself in all the Scripture. The epistle to the Hebrews, it refers much to the types of the person and work of Christ in the tabernacle, priesthood, and offerings. These were patterns, figures, examples, shadows of which our Lord Jesus is the fulfillment and the substance. Now, it's probably no exaggeration to say that among Christians, the book of Leviticus is one of the most neglected books in the Bible. It's certainly one of the least understood. And how many Christians have purposed to read through the Bible? They've got through Genesis right and well, and then they've come to Exodus. It's not too bad. It's narrative. There's things happening. But then they reach uh, the book of Leviticus, and they seem to get bogged down in the seemingly obscure and endless collection of ceremonial laws and rituals. However, one man, he made this comment, The book of Leviticus, like the tabernacle itself, though it may appear uh, unattractive on the outside, and may even provoke the sneers of mere passers-by, it is all glorious within. And those who with reverent feet enter its portal... There will be unfolded to them no inconsiderable amount of the unsearchable riches of Christ. There are the rough badger skins without, but within there is the glory of gold and the beauty of the fine twined linen, with blue and purple and scarlet and cherubims cunningly wrought. End of quote. Now Leviticus it is central to the Pentateuch. And it's teaching, therefore, is central to a redeemed people who have been delivered from Egypt and who are making their way to the promised land with God in the midst of them. So it's really central in this whole uh, portion of God's Word, of these first five books of the Bible, the law. And now, before we want to look at the Levitical offerings, as I said, that's what we want to look at, these five offerings. I do want to, this morning, give an introduction to the book of Leviticus. An introduction to the book of Leviticus. And that will be our study this morning. It will really set the foundation for us as we begin this series of the shadows of the Savior and the sacrifices. Now, we're going to look at this, an introduction to the book of Leviticus under a number of different headings, as you've probably assumed and gathered. Firstly, well, the title of the book. The title of the book. The original Hebrew title of this third book of the law. It's taken from The first Hebrew word that is translated, "...and the Lord called." And the Lord called. So the Hebrew title of this book, it really comes from the first word that is translated for us in the English, "...and the Lord called." Several Old Testament books, they take their Hebrew titles from the opening words of the book. For example, Genesis, the Hebrew title for Genesis, it comes from the words, "...in the beginning." The same for Exodus, those opening words there. Now, these are the names. The Hebrew titles come from the opening Hebrew words. But the English title of this third book, which is Leviticus, as you well know, it comes from the Latin Vulgate version of the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint and Ludicon. That's what it really is in, in, the, in the Latin, and therefore we get uh, Leviticus from that. And that. Well, that Latin word it means that which pertains to the Levites, that which pertains to the Levites. Now it has to be said that it deals really with the priest and the priests in particular, not the whole tribe of Levi, of which the priests were only a part. Now while this book it addresses the priests' responsibilities, more significantly, the priests are instructed in how they are to assist the people in the worship of God. And the people, they are informed about how to live a holy life. In this book of Leviticus, it is mentioned and is quoted over 15 times in the New Testament. So that's really how we get the English title for this third book, Leviticus. It comes from the Latin, from the Greek, Septuagint of the Old Testament. But secondly, what about the author and the date of this book, while Leviticus nowhere uh, contains a claim of authorship, the same kind of arguments that we use to confirm the Mosaic authorship of Genesis and Exodus are also applied to Leviticus. This is because the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, the law, they belong to that one same literary unit. So they're all one unit. Now in addition, we have also clear internal evidence that Moses is the penman, that he is the author of the book. You take the very last verse of the whole book, and we read there in chapter 27 the verse 34, these are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel in Mount Sinai. And 56 times in the 27 chapters of this book, it is stated that God imparted these laws to Moses. So Moses is a pen man. Moses is the one who writes down what God has revealed. Leviticus, it contains... It contains more of the actual spoken words of God than any other book in Scripture. And Moses, while it is a revelation from God, and it is the Word of God, Moses, he is the pen man, he is the human author of the book. Now, we find more evidence for this throughout other parts of Scripture. In Luke chapter 2 and the verse 22, it refers specifically to a passage in Leviticus, and it states that, well, that is from the book of Moses, or the law of Moses. The Apostle Paul, he quoted Leviticus 18, verse 5, in Romans chapter 10, and verse 5. And he also makes reference to the fact that that little bit that he quoted was from Moses. But I suppose the greatest testimony to the authorship of the book is from the Lord Jesus Christ, who ascribed the Pentateuch all these first five books to Moses. And he even referred to Leviticus himself If we compare Matthew chapter 8 verses 1 to 4 and Leviticus chapter 14 verses 1 and 4. So the Lord Jesus, he put his stamp, his seal on the authorship of the book. The human pen man was Moses. And that really hasn't been much contended uh, over the years. Now, the exodus of the children of Israel, that's really the author, but the date of the book. The exodus of the, the children of Israel out of Egypt, it occurred... It occurred around 1445 B.C. And the tabernacle was finished one year later. And then this is where Leviticus picks up in the narrative. God revealed these things to Moses in, the, in really the first month of the second year after the Exodus. The book of Numbers, well, it begins, if we look at the first verse of that book, it begins the second month, the second month of the second year after they came out of Egypt. So this little book of Leviticus, it happens, and all it contains in this book, it happens really in a period of one month in around the year 1444 B.C. And that's really the authorship and the date of the book. And again, those are pretty well-established facts, and we can glean that from the Scripture. The third heading this morning as we think about the introduction to Leviticus is the background... And the setting of the book. The background and the setting to the book. Before Israel, they camped at Mount Sinai, the presence of God, God's glory, it never had formally existed and resided among the Israelites in one particular place. There was no central place of worship like the tabernacle, it had never existed. A structured and regulated set of sacrifices and feasts had not been appointed. A high priest and a formal priesthood, a band of tabernacle workers, well, they had not been instituted. Now, as Exodus concludes, and that's why we read it this morning, we do see that the tabernacle was completed, and we do see that it became the central place for the presence and the glory of God to reside. So, we could say those two things were fulfilled. Those two things were established. But when we come to Exodus, we find that we find there we have the institution and the establishment of a sacrificial system and a priesthood who would administer it. And that's where the book of Leviticus comes in. In Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6, we read there that the Lord had called Israel to to him to become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Leviticus, in turn, is God's instruction for His newly redeemed people, teaching them how to worship Him and how to walk with Him. See, Israel had up until that point, they had only really the historical records of the patriarchs from which to gain their knowledge of how to worship and live before God. It was really only historical narrative that they had, but God was going to set down ceremonial rites and civil laws that would help them in the worship of God and in their duty before God. Now, having been slaves for centuries in, in Egypt, that was a land of seemingly infinite number of gods. Their concept of the worship of God and the worship or, or ordering of a godly life, it was severely distorted. And their tendency was to hold on to polytheism and pagan rituals that they had witnessed in the land of Egypt. And you know, that can be seen several times in their wilderness wanderings. And there's no greater example, really, than we find there in Exodus chapter 32, when they, we read of them making a golden calf. So they had all this influence of uh, ungodly and pagan and polytheistic Egypt. And so God was instructing them, He was giving them a, a set of rules, a set of rituals in which they were to order their lives and worship God in appropriate Manner, and that's really in the instructions in Leviticus that would enable the priest to lead Israel in a worship in a manner of worship that was pleasing, and acceptable and appropriate, unto the Lord. Now, even though the book contains a great deal of law, it it is presented in a historical format. Immediately after Moses had constructed the tabernacle, God came in glory to dwell there, and then that really marked the close of the book of Exodus. But it continues on. The narrative continues on. We read there, verse 1, and, and the Lord called unto Moses, and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Leviticus begins with God calling to Moses from the tabernacle. Now, in Genesis, God spoke from heaven. You remember that the count there Genesis 22 Abraham Isaac God spoke from heaven In Exodus God spoke from Mount Sinai and Leviticus here he speaks from the tabernacle of the congregation and this is not the first time that the Lord called unto Moses he had called Moses obviously Exodus chapter 3 in the verse 4 he called him again in Exodus chapter 19 in the verse 3 The first call that came out of the bush, the second call that came from the mountain, and this third call, now it comes from the tabernacle. The first call was to service, the second call was to holiness, and this third call is to worship. And we find here, as I've already mentioned, that really all this happens, this book of Leviticus, and all the revelation of God, of all the rituals and all the rites, they were communicated to Moses, within a month, a period there, as the children of Israel remained at the bottom of Mount Sinai. So that's really where the book fits in the setting. It is a progression on, after the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, then God called to Moses out of the tabernacle to continue to give him instructions on how they were to live. Fourthly, the theological themes of the book. What's the What's really the theme, the core theme of this book? Well, it, it has been said, it took God only one night. It took God only one night to get Israel out of Egypt. But it took Him 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. And having been led out of the land of bondage in the Exodus, they were led into the sanctuary of God in Leviticus. They move from redemption, really, to service, to worship, from deliverance to dedication. And the core idea around which this book of Leviticus develops is the holiness of God and how an unholy people can acceptably approach Him and then remain in continued fellowship with Him. And that's the core theme of this book, the holiness of God and how an unholy people can acceptably approach Him and then remain in fellowship with Uh, With him. The word holy, it occurs 94 times in this book, more than any other book. And really, we could say that's the core idea. The holiness of God, God's holiness, man's sinfulness, sacrifice, and God's presence. Well, they're the, the common themes that we find in this book of Leviticus. There's a continued emphasis on the necessity of personal holiness in response to the holiness of God. On over 125 occasions in this book, Leviticus charges man with uncleanness, and then on the back of that, with the necessity of being purified in order to have fellowship with God. And really, the motive for holiness in the life of the the children of Israel, we find it stated in two repeated phrases— What's the motivation? Well, the first one is, I am the Lord. That was their motivation. And the second one was, he said, I am holy. And those phrases are used over 50 times in the book. That's the motivation. Because the Lord of who he is and because he is holy, he said to them, he said to them in chapter 20 in the verse 7 and 8, He says, Sanctify yourselves therefore, and be ye holy, for I am the Lord, your God, and ye shall keep my statutes, and do them. I am the Lord, which sanctify you. Now, with the opening word of this book of Leviticus being, and, we see that there's something of a continuity between Exodus and Leviticus. Therefore, Leviticus It cannot be read in isolation from what has gone before. In fact, it's what happens to the children of Israel in the Exodus is the foundation for what is said to them in Leviticus. These are instructions, they are rites, they are rituals for a redeemed people. A redeemed people. Now, one man, he made these comments about the two books. In Exodus, we are brought nigh to God. In Leviticus, we are kept nigh. In Exodus, we have the fact of the atonement. In Leviticus, the doctrine of the atonement. Exodus begins with sinners. Leviticus, with saints. In Exodus, we have God's approach to us. In Leviticus, we have our approach to God. In Exodus, Christ is Savior. In Leviticus, He is sanctifier. In Exodus, our guilt is prominent. In Leviticus, our defilement is prominent. Exodus begins with a people degenerate, but Leviticus with a people regenerate. In Exodus, we are brought into union with God. In Leviticus, we are brought and kept in communion with God. And therefore, we cannot look at, really, Leviticus in isolation from Exodus, for these are instructions, their rites, or rituals to a redeemed people, how they may worship God acceptably, how they maintain their communion and fellowship with God. And therefore, it's very pertinent for us of, as God's people, those of us who have been redeemed, those of us who have been brought out of the Egypt of our sin. Now, in the book of Exodus, we do find the giving of the moral law, the instructions for the tabernacle and also the priesthood as well. And then in Leviticus, we have the giving of the ceremonial law, which which was to be officiated over by the priests in the service of the tabernacle. So, another major theme, yes, there is the, the holiness of God, but another major theme of the book of Leviticus is the ceremonial system. The ceremonial rites. What was the function of the ceremonial system? What was it? The ceremonial system was to serve as a means, already mentioned it, by which the children of Israel could acceptably draw nigh to God. You see, the threatenings of the broken law, it caused the Hebrew to flee to the ceremonial law, in which he could find the means of reconciliation and the remission of sins set forth by type and shadow. Three times in the opening chapter of this book, and we we never read it, but three times we have mention of an offering that is a sweet savor unto the Lord. And that was an offering that was accepted by the Lord. It pleased him because of who and what it signified. Namely, the sweet-smelling savor, of Christ's sacrifice. Therefore, the offerer was able to draw near to God, and the offerer was able to continue in fellowship with God by the sacrifice. And, you, and we know, and I don't need you, me, to tell you that the only way that we are unable to draw nigh to God, and the only way that you and I are enabled to continue to have fellowship with God is by the daily cleansing of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how communion with God is maintained. Now, another key theme in this book, not only, yes, is communion and how we can acceptably draw an eye to God, the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and the need of an offering, but there's also blood atonement. And they all tie in and fit in together. And a key verse, of course, is found in Leviticus chapter 17. And the verse 11. It's a key verse that should be underlined even in the Word of God in the Bible. It says there, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. I would go as far to say that this is not only a key verse in the book of Leviticus, this is a key verse in the whole Of Scripture. Now, as we know, and as we look back through the lens of the New Testament, the blood of bulls and goats, they could never take away sin. They could never atone for sin. God never accepted the blood of bulls and goats as the final payment for sin, but He still required it. He required that that blood had to be shed. It was an atonement to cover sins until Christ came. It was if I can express it like this, it was as if God saved on credit in the Old Testament. When Christ came, it was His blood that atoned for sin. All sin. And that's what Paul refers to in Romans chapter 3 in verse 25. Speaking of the redemption is in Christ, he goes on to say, "...whom God has set forth... To be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. God in his great patience, God saving them as it were on credit through as he was looking upon Jesus Christ. It tells us there that Christ's redemption was the means by which the sins of the past were remitted. The free is the sins of their past. What does that refer to? Well, it's referring back to the sins of the Old Testament period, right up until Christ actually died and shed His blood. As Isaac Watts penned in his great hymn, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain. But Christ, the heavenly Lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name, and richer blood than they. And so we look through the telescope, the lens, we have to say for us, the corrective glasses of the New Testament, and we see that the blood of the sacrifices there, they were only typifying, they were only a foreshadowing of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was His blood and His blood alone that was the remission of sins that are past. God, as it were, truly did save, definitely did save always on the merit and the basis of Jesus Christ through faith alone in Christ. But it was as if he saved, if I put it this way, for our own understanding, on credit because the blood of bulls and goats could never, ever take away sin. And all the ceremonial rites and rituals and sacrifices, as you well know, they only foreshadowed what the Lord Jesus Christ would come to do. The ceremonial system it clearly was designed to enable to enable the believer to experience and enjoy the presence of God by dealing with the sin that caused estrangement, by dealing with defilement, daily defilement in the redeemed child of God. Remember, the blood had been applied to the doorposts. Remember, I've said this is This is uh, instructions given to a people who are redeemed. And therefore, these ceremonial rites, they were designed to enable the the believer to experience and enjoy the presence of God by dealing with the daily sin that caused estrangement. The very purpose of the tabernacle in the midst of Israel as they traveled in the wilderness was to to show the people of God that, that God was in the midst of them. The tabernacle was a visible manifestation of the the presence of God, and the ceremonial rites and rituals and system was a means whereby the people of God could enjoy the experience of His presence. The ceremonial system had also provided a means by which the Jew could express and render their thanksgiving unto God. It was a way in which they could demonstrate that they were thankful to God for what He had done for them. You see, one of the truths of the Old and the New Testament is a thankful heart is a contented heart. You know, when God blesses you, one of the quickest ways that you can ruin your experience of that blessing is not to thank Him, is not to thank God. And so upon the blessing of God, the ceremonial system it allowed for the expression of gratitude of thanksgiving uh, the expression of gratitude and thanksgiving in the children of Israel and that in turn cultivated a spirit of contentedness among them it allowed them to render thanks unto God and therefore it in that vast company of people and you notice like when they're all packed together it's the wilderness things are right and tough and hard in their experience and their journeys but therefore they had a, a way, they had a means to express their thanks unto God and to nurture and develop that contented spirit within them and therefore it promote harmony and blessedness in that company as they made their way to uh, the promised land. So once again, the, the heading of this little section was the, the theological themes of this book of Leviticus. The core idea, just to say again, is the holiness of God and how an unholy people can acceptably approach Him and then remain in continued fellowship with Him. Fifthly, the interpretive challenges of the book. Leviticus, well, it's both a manual for the worship of God in Israel, and it is a theology of the old old dispensation of God's covenant. The comprehensive understanding of the ceremonies, laws, and ritual details prescribed in this book, it's difficult for us today because Moses, he assumed a certain context of historical understanding. And what I mean by that, well, the cultural context, it's so different from ours today. We are so far removed from the practices, the rites, the rituals of these people in the day of Moses. And we must, we must, if we're going to understand Leviticus, we must understand it in its original context, or we won't be able to apply it today, to us today. For example, Leviticus, it often uses language, the language of unclean and clean. Now, for us today, those words, maybe to the modern reader, if they pick it up for the first time, you're well versed here, you know what this means, but Someone who picks this up and they read on clean and clean, they might be thinking something that is non-hygienic or something that is hygienic. Something that is dirty and dusty or something that is spick and span. And really that's what someone might think. But in the cultural context and in the historical setting, those words refer to clean and unclean. They refer really to ritual states. Ritual states that which is acceptable that which is not acceptable unto God. There's many an animal that was considered unclean but it might have been outwardly a clean animal. Didn't mean it was covered in muck. I know the pig obviously it liked to roll around in the muck and that's a very physical obvious external example but there were other animals that were considered unclean and you would have to say they would preen themselves and they would look after themselves. And, and therefore, as you well know, we, we must understand words like that in its cultural context, clean and unclean, they're referring to the ritual state of a certain thing or sacrifice or offering or individual in the eyes of the Lord. Now, once that challenge of understanding the detailed prescriptions has been met, once we understand it in its cultural and historical setting, well, then the question arises. It arises as how do believers in the church today should respond to what we read. Since the New Testament, it clearly repeals the Old Testament ceremonial law. Clearly, we see that. We can think of passages such as Acts 10, verses 1 to 16, and that's the account there of Peter's vision and the animals coming down in the sheet. But we see there that It's repealed. The ceremonial laws, uh, the civil laws, most of them, the majority of, I should say, the the ceremonial laws are civil laws. Some of them uh, still do apply. But the ceremonial rites and rituals, they are repealed in the New Testament. We also think of Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16. And it speaks there about those certain feast days. But that's all past and gone. The New Testament also does away with the Levitical priesthood. We could think of 1 Peter chapter 2 in the verse 9, how the church of Christ is now the priesthood. Think of Revelation 1 verse 6. We also have in the New Testament, we have the institution of the new administration of God's covenant by the preaching of the gospel and by the observance of the two ordinances, the, the Lord's table and baptism. So therefore, how are we to understand Leviticus What we read here in Leviticus, ceremonial rites in the light of all that, of all what we now know and experience in the New Testament. Well, there's one thing for certain we shouldn't practice these old ceremonies. There is no need to since they have been fulfilled in Christ. They're fulfilled in Christ. Rather, we should be looking for the spiritual significance in them. The interpreter, as we look at this, we're challenged to compare what we find in this book with what the New Testament writers present by way of types and analogies based on the tabernacle and the ceremonial aspects of the law. And we're to do that to learn valuable lessons concerning Christ, His person, His work, and the new covenant, the new covenant reality or administration of the covenant of God's grace. We must add the caution, however, when we come to interpret Leviticus, we must add the caution of excessive typology and must be rejected. Only that which the New Testament writers identifies as types of Christ should be interpreted in that way. For example, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 Christ is our Passover. So clearly In that, we have the Savior in the shadow of a sacrifice. So we can look at the sacrifices in that way. Robert Murray McSheehan he said this, thinking about really interpretive and understanding the book of Leviticus. He said, The Jews look upon a veiled Savior whom they had never seen unveiled. We under the New Testament look upon an unveiled Savior and going back to the Old Testament, we can see far better than the Jews could the features and the form of Jesus the Beloved under that veil. We are a blessed people indeed. We truly are this side of the cross in this new dispensation of the administration of God's covenant of grace. We're a truly blessed people. I was thinking about that just in the room Across before I come in here. You think of all the natural advantages. Now, I know we need a supernatural advantage and enablement and enlightenment of the Holy Spirit if we're ever going to understand these things. I understand that. That's indispensable. But you think of the natural advantages that you and I have. What natural advantages? Well, we have the full copy of the Scripture, we have a faithful translation. Another thing I thought we have the ability to read these things we have we live in an age of education we're not illiterate god has given us faculties of our eyes of our minds of all these things god has given us reason and we live on this side of the cross and we have every natural advantage we have commentaries we have concordances we have sermons We have so much with which we can look back into Leviticus and glean an understanding and see shadows of our Savior in the sacrifices. We are truly a blessed people indeed. The Jews, they looked upon an unveiled Savior. And yet still by faith they saw Him. They saw Him, but truly, brethren and sisters, how much clearer and brighter should we not see our Savior? with all our natural advantages and yet with all the blessedness of the supernatural help and aid and enablement and enlightenment of the Holy Ghost. The best commentary, the best commentary on the book of Leviticus to help us understand what we find there is the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. If you want a commentary by a a man more up-to-date we might say an old divine Andrew Bonner would be the book to get on Leviticus. So the interpretive challenges of the book. Sixthly, the outline of the book. We need to move quick, quicker here. This is the last point. So sixthly this morning, the outline of the book. There are, of course, there, are varying, there are varying ways and schemes that men have set forth to outline this book. But the most basic is that it falls into two major sections sacrifice, sanctification. Or you could look at it like this, the way to God and the walk with God. The first 16 chapters of Leviticus, they constitute the first section, sacrifice, or the way to God. And they, that section contains at least four things. Firstly, in chapters 1 to 7, we see the regulations relating to the five Levitical offerings that we're looking to study. Those Those regulations are gone over twice in those first seven chapters, once in chapters 1 to 5, and then they're repeated in chapters 6 and 7. In chapters 8 to 10, we see the formal initiation of the Aaronic priesthood. In chapters 11 to 15, we have the discussion of the distinction between that which is clean and unclean. And then in chapter 16, we we have the instruction for the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, set forth. In the second section, sanctification, or walk with God, the final 11 chapters of the book, we have certain ceremonial and civil laws for the people, for the priests, how they were to worship, how they would conduct themselves in the land of Canaan, and what vows they were to offer in order that they might be a holy people serving a holy God. Now I've mentioned there that in Leviticus 1-7 to we have the five Levitical offerings described described in order, chapters 1 to 5, and then we have it repeated in chapters 6 and 7. Now, why is that the case? Why is it given once and then? Why is it repeated? Well, the first time they're described, they're described from the standpoint from the one, from the one who wants to come into fellowship with God, from the one who is making the sacrifice, from the viewpoint of the one who wants to thank God. The second time that they are given, they are explained from the standpoint of the requirements of the mediator. Or the priest, the one who is officiating over the offering of the sacrifice. And in that way, we get a fuller understanding of the offering as it's dealt with from those two aspects of the offerer and the officiate. And that's why it's repeated. Now, the five principal offerings outlined in the first seven chapters they are the burnt offering, mentioned first. That's followed by the meat offering. Then in the central place is the peace offering. Then we have the sin offering. And finally, the trespass offering. Now, there's other offerings mentioned or referred to as auxiliary offerings. as what men referred to them as. We could think of the drink offering that was offered along with some of the sacrifices. It was poured out. There's another offering. It's only mentioned in, in Nehemiah 10 and Nehemiah 13. It's called the wood offering. And that was when people brought wood that the fire on the altar would continually burn. But the five main Levitical offerings, well, each of them have their own distinctive features. But they all have this in common. They all portray. And each, in their own particular way, they represent and they set forth something of the person, the ministry, the offices and the perfections of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as all the four Gospels present Christ, but each with its own particular aspect and and emphasis. So the offerings, with all their differences, they unite to give us a full-on picture of the Savior and the loveliness of His life and His character and the wonder of His sufferings and death. It's important for us to recognize that the offerings that are spoken of in Leviticus chapter 1 to chapter 7, they're different from the sacrifices of the great festivals. Some of those sacrifices, those great festivals and feasts, are described in Exodus. They're described later on in Moses' writing and in his other books. And we do also find some of them here in Leviticus. Those sacrifices, those festivals, those feasts, they were corporate gatherings of the whole of Israel where they had to offer the obligatory sacrifice. But these five offerings, these five sacrifices in the first seven chapters of Leviticus... They're they're different from those festival and feast sacrifices. They are voluntary sacrifices. Notice the language that God speaks to Moses in verse 2. He says, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, If if any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of cattle even of the herd and of the flocks. There is no command that this sacrifice must be brought. There's no command at what time it should be offered. This is a voluntary sacrifice. It's a personal sacrifice. It's not something that has to be done at the same time as the rest of Israel. This is done when the individual feels they need to do it. Perhaps they feel they come to an understanding of the defilement of their sin. They need forgiveness. Well, they'd bring then the offering. Or they want to, as it were, Thank God for some of His blessings. They would bring an offering. Or they want to consecrate themselves afresh to God. They would bring an offering. They are for personal reasons. They are personal offerings unto the Lord. So often we might be inclined to think that in the old dispensation, covenant, religion, it was often, and it was only corporate and external. Whereas in the new dispensation, New Testament age, well, religion, it's more personal, it's more internal. Well, that's a false dichotomy, and we have it here set forth in these offerings. These were personal; these were voluntary; these were brought when the individual came to feel, to experience, to understand their need of bringing them unto the Lord. The prophets, the prophets later on, well, they especially focused on the heart—the heart of the one bringing these offerings—that it was right before God, internal, personal religion, or or else. You know, that offering, it meant nothing to God. And so these sacrifices, all like the sacrifices of the festivals, the feasts, they were voluntary. They were personal. They were spontaneous. They were brought by the voluntary desires of individuals in Israel. And we're going to begin to look at them next time, Lord willing. Hebrews 10 As I close verse 1, it tells us, For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. The shadow of the good things to come. The good things to come speak of Christ who has come and secured for His people all the blessings of His gospel. It is the shadow of the Savior that we see in the sacrifices. It is one once-for-all sacrifice for sin that enables us unholy sinners to draw nigh unto God to be acceptable in His sight. And it is that sacrifice which is the grounds for our sanctification by which we live out the law that is written upon our hearts. I trust the Lord will lift up the light of His countenance to shine upon the study, the shadow of the Savior and the sacrifices. And in doing so, He'll give us clear views of the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless His Word to our hearts and next time, Lord willing, we'll begin to look at the first of the five Levitical offerings in this book of Leviticus. Let's unite together in prayer. Father in heaven, we come to Thee, Lord, at the commencement office study. And we thank Thee, Lord, for the helps that Thou has given to the church. For men of old who have wrote commentaries, who have searched and read and studied these things. But, Lord, most of all, we come to Thee. And we ask Thee for the help, the enablement of the Holy Spirit. We pray that as we enter into these offerings, that You'll help us to have a clear understanding... And, Lord, we pray that Thou would help us in our walk with Thee. Help us, Lord, as a redeemed people who have been brought out of the Egypt of this world, who have the blood applied to our souls. Help us to worship Thee and to walk with Thee as we ought. We pray that this study in Leviticus will help us in that matter. Lord, I pray for the morning worship service. And Thou would help Thy servant as He would preach the Word. And Lord, that you'll help us now in this little time of prayer in which we can prepare our hearts and call upon thy blessing. Hear us, Lord, and do us good. Pray this all, Jesus' precious and lovely name. Amen.